on this wonderful morning as we come now to our time of hearing God's Word. I'm just going to ask you to grab your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 3. As we turn there today, we have reached the seventh of seven churches. So today we will look at the seventh church, which is the church at Laodicea, beginning in verse 14 and down through verse 22. Do listen as I read God's word, then we will pray and really dig into this together. Listen to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, poor, or pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, it is always with a clear sense of need and dependence upon you. We understand that this is given for our edification, our instruction, for our correction. But to lay hold of it, we must be enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we ask God that you would shed light upon your word, that we would understand what it means. We would grasp the circumstances and events of those days. We would see areas of need and similarity. And Lord, if if there are areas in our own lives that uh, there would be correction and reproof, that there would be repentance and zealousness, that there would be a commitment to continue on if we have, by your grace, made strides in these areas. Just to ask you that as we take up this section today, that you would make it powerful and clear and impact our hearts and lives with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to the last of the seven churches, this church is called Laodicea. It was named after a regional ruler's wife. It is a place that was, like many of these other uh, places that the letters were written to, the town of Laodicea was tremendously prosperous. There had been not far back in the history of this, this uh, small city, a time where an earthquake had devastated the region. But this was a town that not only did they not request help rebuilding from Rome, 
they said, we've got this, and they rebuilt themselves, and they helped neighboring cities rebuild also. That was how economically stable this place was. A place that was known for high-quality textiles, name-brand clothing, you might say, of the best quality. They were also known for being a place with medical colleges, and they had produced what was considered the most effective eye salve or eye balm to deal with um, issues of eye infections that was known and sold and spread throughout the region in those days. So this small city had a, a great reputation in terms of its uh, general economic circumstances, its standing, its accomplishments. Uh, the worst thing about this town that would have been known by every single person who lived there. It would have been a perpetual complaint. You know, there are certain things about certain towns or cities that people just complain about. Whatever, it, in some towns, it may be there's just no parking. No matter, you can't find parking. Another, it might be traffic. The traffic is just unbearable. Another, it might be so many of the places are closed by 3 p.m. What do we do after 3 p.m.? It's closed. This particular town, their distinctive failing of no result of their own effort was they had bad water. Not too far from them was the city of Colossae. And in Colossae, they had mountain streams. You know, that fresh mountain stream water that was flowing, that was coming out, flowing through the rocks, icy, cold, clean, delicious, fresh. A little further from them, another direction was Hierapolis, which you could maybe consider Hot Springs Asia Minor because it was a place known for hot springs. People would go to that place for the water to bathe in the hot springs to, to get the supposed medicinal benefits that will come to their bodies of being refreshed and encouraged. Here, they only had one little river that flowed through town, and it was undrinkable. Apparently, it had some kind of sludge in it that made it milky white and nauseous. So what they did is they had to build an, uh, you know, a little aqueduct from about five miles away that would take water from the nearest hot spring, and it would pipe the water in. But even then, one of the things about hot springs is it may have high degrees of sulfur and other things in it that it is beneficial, seemingly, to the body and the skin when you sit in it, but still not optimum for drinking. And by the time water from the hot spring would reach to Laodicea in the, in the aqueduct, it had a peculiar scent, and it was lukewarm. And this was just the common experience of daily life. Nobody was grabbing a cup of water to refresh themselves. Generally speaking, the water would have to be, they would have to attempt to cool it or they'd have to reheat it and add some sport, sort of spices and flavors to it 
because the water they, they received as it was, was unsavory and undesirable. It's always interesting in the context of these cities to see how Christ takes those elements that are so known and so familiar to them. Things that have often been involved in the whole flow maybe of the history of that town. And he brings it with such relevance and such power. So let's take, the, take up and, and see this, this uh, letter to Laodicea. Sadly, unlike the other letters, this one has zero in it to commend them. It is completely rebuke. Now, when we looked at Sardis, there was no commending there either, but at least you could see in there it said, you have a few who have not soiled their garments. So I mean, it's almost like a little light. Here in Laodicea, it's just all condemnation and all judgment. I want to take this up under the really the introduction once again there in verse 14, and I want us to look at what I would call the sure announcer. Again, Jesus is speaking, and so that it would be clear that what he is saying is sure, true, trustworthy, reliable. He introduces himself with very strong terms, terms that we generally don't use. He says in verse 14 to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right, the words of the amen. We generally don't use that phrase of anybody. Here's the amen. And it cannot really rightly be applied to any other than Christ. And even as I say that, it can tend to be a bit confusing. Because you and I do use the word amen from time to time. Hopefully every day. And when do we oft use the word amen? at the end of our prayers, correct? So, so there's the tendency, to, to, depending on how and where we've grown up, to think that amen means the end. It's the end of my prayer. Fini, no more, signing off. No, that, that's not the idea of it. Now, we, we've often looked at it in terms of a, a, a response of agreement, uh, so be it, may it be so. And that there's an element of that that got caught up in the regular traditional practice of it that is there. But if we go back further to the origins of amen, we'll see it in places such as Isaiah 65. Now I'm going to read Isaiah 65, 16 to you. And when I finish reading this verse... You're going to look at me and say, you did not say amen a single time. You read the wrong verse. I am not reading the wrong verse. Isaiah 65, verse 16 says this. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall be blessed by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. So where was the amen? The God of truth. That word that's translated God of truth is really the God of amen. 
This is a solid word. This is a firm word. We might say it as a repeat, so be it. But when God says it, so it is. It has that, that firmness to it. So, the, so really the, the, the stronger root of amen is not simply so be it or bringing ourselves into agreement. It is the recognition and acknowledgement of truth. We do remember that Jesus also declares of himself, he is the way the truth, the life. When Jesus is getting ready to speak to this church, and this is a church not unlike a previous church we looked at, that has an absolutely deluded view of themselves. They think they are great. They think they are blessed. They think they are amazing. And what Jesus is about to tell them is, everything you think is wrong every asset that you think that you have does not exist you are the opposite of what you think you are and that, and that's a tough thing for people to get into our minds i remember years and years ago when uh, my son was first learning tennis and taking some tennis lessons there was a, a local little boy whose name was leon and he came around and he said, I'm the greatest. I'm amazing at this sport. And we're like, well, that's great. There's another little kid that, that can play with and practice with. And you hit the ball to Leon. It's a swing and a miss. <laughs> and if it's not a miss, it's a home run, which is a different game. You don't hit home runs in tennis. If you do, you just lost the point. It, but nonetheless, there was no point at which he was whiffing on the ball and hitting it into the fences. There was no point at which he said, well, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. He left that day. I don't know if he ever hit the ball in the court, but he left that day still convinced, I am the greatest. Wow, that's amazing. I hope we don't do that to some extent. I'll, I, I'm quite confident that at some point he realized that he's not great in that. You know, he got past the blindness of childhood. But this is much what's going on in Laodicea. They are so full of self-praise and self-amazement. It is even as if they have so taken their eyes off of their Savior and glorying in his beauty, his excellence, his wonderful work, that they're looking at themselves and their accomplishments and their success, their achievements, their advancements. The sure announcer, the amen, and then it goes on. If that wasn't enough, it piles it up. The uh, words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. So you basically have three words in a row. Amen, faithful, and true. Piling up to say, can we doubt a single thing he says? Yeah. In triplicate, it's basically declaring, if you differ from what he says, you're wrong. He's right. Stop talking, stop thinking, 
Stop self-deceiving, stop self-defending, and listen up, because the one who is about to speak is the one you should listen to. The same thing we see if you're reading through the older King James Version, you would see this often in the Gospel of John. Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's the same word there. Amen, amen, I say unto you. The declaration that I am saying a trustworthy word. Sort of that's more the way that Paul, the apostle, would say it. Here is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. In a sense, Jesus is reminding them before he speaks, what I say is not up for debate. I'm not opening dialogue here. We're not beginning a discussion. I'm telling you, I am the sure announcer, and you need to acknowledge all that I announce. That's it. Nothing else. No, no twisting. Then it says also something interesting that, that always when, when things are said in less common ways, men left to themselves can go dangerous directions. It says, the beginning of all creation. And they say, oh. So some crazy man comes in and say, oh, Jesus was the first thing that God created and then everything else. No. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Christ the Son is the eternal Son of God who has no beginning. Indeed, He is the source of the beginning of all creation because we are told in Colossians 1.16 these words, for by Him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. So by Him, this is Christ, all things were created, which tells you what? He himself is not created because everything that ever was created was created through or by him. And that's all encompassing. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, everything created. The Son created it. Goes on to say, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then it says this, he is before all things. Yeah, before there was anything else. When only there was God, he was. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God eternal. That's why we can say with our verbs, he was, he is, he is to come. Without beginning, without end, that Jesus can say of himself, I am. And we refer to him as the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And you think, what is that? Well, because Jesus there was never a time where he did not exist. And there was a time Abraham didn't, and then he lived, and then he died. 
And before Abraham was born, during Abraham's life, and after Abraham was already dead, Jesus is. Or was. See, our language gets messy because of how amazing he is. But I note this. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. So I, what you're starting to get there, hopefully, from the idea of the beginning is first. That word there is often first in rank, first in position, first in authority. Let me read you another verse or two that has this same Greek word in it, and you're going to look at me and say, you didn't say the word beginning, you read the wrong verse. But again, I did not read the wrong verse. It is simply translated in a way that's faithful to the context. The first I'm reading for you is Ephesians 1, 21. Speaking of Christ after he died and was resurrected, it ascended on high, Ephesians 1, 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come so where was the word beginning in there far above all rule that word rule is the word that's also used for beginning same thing romans 8:38 listen as i read romans 8:38 for i'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.38 says this, nor rulers or principalities. So when it says he's the beginning of all things, it's not only is he the source of everything's origin, but he rules it. He is the principality potentate, which, you know, he's the omnipotent one with absolute sovereign rule. So again, the guy who is now speaking to them, Christ, everything I say is absolutely true. And I am the final authority over everything. There's no messing around. So from the sure announcer, we move on to what I would call the Savior's assessment. Let us see the Savior's assessment. He says in verse 16, So, well, he had said, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so you are lukewarm, and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I remember being mistaught this section. There's two sections in this particular uh, Laodicea letter that I was mistaught in my youth. One was, you know, you got to be hot. You got to be on fire. You know, that, that, that's what happened. You know, they, you, you don't want to be cold and, and lifeless and unresponsive. That's not what's being said here. If you look closely, he says, you're not cold. 
you're not hot. Would that, I would rather you be cold or hot, but instead, you're lukewarm. I'm spitting you out of my mouth. Now again, when we're looking at, at, at their experience, remember, cold is not lifeless and unresponsive when it comes to water and what they put in their mouth in that region. Cold is delicious, refreshing. You know, you just, you come in the house absolutely dripping sweat and you get a glass full of ice cold water and you drink that down and that cold water just feels so good that you rarely stop at one cup. You fill it again and you drink it again. Just so refreshing. Why, why are you not a people that are, that, that are a refreshment, that, that, that are a blessing, that are a benefit in, 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 in hardship, in times of need, in times of difficulty? Or why are you not hot like those hot springs? When the body is aching and ailing and you need a little bit of, of comfort, and you need a little bit of encouragement. Why are you not refreshing and, and vibrant and vital? Or why are you not at least soothing and comforting and, and benefiting? Uh, all of these things that you know about, you're neither of these good things. What you're like is lukewarm. And immediately for those people, as you remember from our introduction, that's that nasty distasteful, unpleasant daily water that they had. And it wouldn't be uncommon for a passer through Laodicea to get a cup of water. It's, what is this? Water? That's not water. No. And they have, have to put something in it some sort of seeds, some sort of spices, and warm it up into some kind of tea or elixir, something that could be drunk because it just was no good. He says, that's what you are, no good. There's no delight, there's no refreshing, there's, there's no benefit, there's no comfort, there's no medicinal effect. What you are is nothing useful, nothing wanted, nothing desirable. And that is shocking to this church because they look at themselves and think, we're the best. And one of the reasons why they think they are the best is because they think that they are the blessed. And as we begin to look at how this unfolds, I mean, it's just with such strong language. Here's the way that it says it. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the word, that, that is, that's just strong language. And generally speaking, socially and, and in the area, if you still had the water in a cup, you might make use of it by warming it up and adding a few different things. Once it's been in someone's mouth and then expelled, it's done. That, 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 that is, no one's using that. No one's crawling on their knees to collect that up. 
That is done and unwanted. This is strong language. It, it, it is, I am finished with you, not to be regathered. I mean, very, very serious statement being made. And, and he says that he will reject them there. Now, the, the, the mix of confusion here comes as we move from what I would call the Savior's assessment to their self-assessment. Let us see their self-assessment in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked all right so so we see a strong or a stark contrast between the savior's assessment and their self-assessment don't we now it's interesting and part of this i guess we've got to be careful as as we think it out one of the things we studied even this morning we were looking at the children of israel uh, uh, coming through in the days of the old covenant and it had been told them in Deuteronomy 38 and following in the context of the old covenant if you obey me all the words that I'm sharing with you and, and you walk in my commandments then I will bless you keep you prosper you watch over you you know ex multiply you all of these blessings if you disobey I will destroy you. I will wipe you out. I will punish you. I will give you over to your enemies. And so it, it was in that old covenant with his old covenant people. It was, it was a physical nation who was given physical land. And that physical covenant was attended with physical blessings or physical curses. That has somehow established a pattern in the minds of men that that's how we can tell who's pleasing to God and who's not pleasing to God. That's how we can tell who's a blessing and who's not a blessing. It, 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 and this is one of the, the biggest challenges. Here in this church, they would look at themselves. See, unlike the church that we looked at before, uh, you have little strength but you have not denied my name. They, they were small in number. They didn't have any people of significant influence. They didn't seem to be a financially uh, solid church, and yet God was pleased with them, and they were going to persevere, and he, and he spoke of them great commendation. Here, the church, with regard to worldly things, they've got it all. I mean, he doesn't go into extreme detail because he simply says, as he, as he describes them, simply says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Now, even in that phrasing, I think it's important for us, it, it shouldn't be hard to listen to, to the language of what they say. I have prospered, I am rich, I need nothing. I, I, I. Where do you think their focus is? 
Where do you think their praise is? Are there, is there focus on God? See, again here, their, their initial thoughts aren't e e even that He has provided, He has given, He has supplied. We have from His hand all that we need. They're not saying that. They're saying, I have. I have. That's that tendency. The children of Israel were even warned in the book of Deuteronomy. When you go in and I give you this land, I'm giving it to you because these nations, their sinfulness, they have polluted the land, they lose it. I'm giving it to you. When I give it to you, do not say it's because of your righteousness, because you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. When you inherit the land and you possess it, do not say, my power and my might have got me these things. Because they did not. God gave them and God can take it away. And as we're going through in the morning hour, the book of Judges, you know, it is a book of God giving and taking away and giving and taking away. It's like, what is going on? When will they wake up? When will they see it? But see, now we are not under the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. And as Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth. Otherwise, my people would fight for me. His kingdom is from above. It is the Jerusalem from above that is our mother. It is a spiritual kingdom comprised of people that God has called to himself out of every tongue, tribe, language, and people. It's not inhabiting a specific land. It's not in a place gathering in specific votes. It is a spiritual people of which Christ is the head of the spiritual body. We are members of that spiritual kingdom which is glorious. And it is a new covenant which is a better covenant with better promises. Because we would not simply want the land of Canaan... <laughs> The land that is ultimately promised for us is a new heaven and a new earth with a Jerusalem from above that far exceeds that. We don't simply want all of those things that were temporary and passing away, but the things that abide and endure forever. And so the, there's a transition where Jesus even begins in, in, in certain places such as the Sermon on the Mount to begin to try to cultivate their minds to think differently by saying things like, blessed are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit, which, what? No, they're not blessed. Yes, they are. For theirs is the kingdom. You've got to understand this. Everything that you people are focused on is so worldly, so temporary, so passing and fleeting. The things that you value have no value at all. You know, sometimes uh, you, know, you, you, you think about that because ultimately the, those of us who, who carry cash, it's ultimately, what's the value of that? If you have a $100 bill and suddenly the United States of America ceased to exist, what's the value of that piece of paper? How much did it cost to make it? How much can you sell it for? 
You going to be selling them for the equivalent of $100? What's the difference then between a, a, a one and a 100? Or in a million, a million dollar bill, which is actually not a real bill. It's just a track people put out. But all, all, it's just a piece of paper in the end, isn't it? And so there's, there is that sense where Christ is wanting us to know they're valuing all these things that don't really matter. And you can see their focus from their words. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. They're highest priority their highest sense of value is in their wealth and the things their wealth affords them that's what they value and because they have those things they think we need nothing but listen they need we are always in need of forgiveness. We are always in need of, of, the, of the Spirit to, to uh, continue to open our minds to understand, to lead us in, in a life that's more obedient, to, for, for greater boldness that we might serve and speak as we ought. The children of God, we recognize that we are constantly a people dependent upon our God to supply and embolden us to serve Him in a way that is right. We know that, that he has promised to meet all of those needs and supply those things, but we are not presumptive. We, we recognize we are rich because he has promised us supply. They say we need nothing. When you, when you begin to see this, this complete uh, different perspective, you see that, that their idea is and their minds are twisted. Remember, the scriptures tell us these things. Where a man's heart is, there his treasure will be also. What did the people in Laodicea treasure? Did they treasure Christ? Treasure the gospel? Forgiveness of sin? Growth in grace? Did they treasure these things? You know what they treasured? And this is, the, this is the, the grievous thing. They treasured the very same things that their idolatrous neighbors treasured. There was nothing. See, what's interesting also, and, and many have noticed this when they deal with Laodicea, in a lot of the other churches, there was persecution. There was hardship and there was mistreatment. And the church in particular was always under heavy oppression from the Jewish communities who were around them. Laodicea, historically, had one of the larger percentage Jewish communities. Yet the church in Laodicea is at ease, at comfort. Many of the scholars who have studied this say it seems to be that what has happened, the church in Laodicea has become so compromised, so complacent that they've left off the gospel, they've left off the declaration of Christ as the Messiah, you know, because you say that Christ is the Messiah, the only hope for the forgiveness of sin, and you are a stumbling block to the Jews, they will be offended, as they oft were with Christ. You tell the rest of the people, 
All of these gods have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, hands, feet, but they can't move. They can't do a thing. There is only one God and there is only one salvation. And this is Christ and he died and rose again and he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And what, are the, what does the world say? Foolishness that there could be only one God. It seems that the church in Laodicea seems to have great relationship with the Jews and great relationship with the unbelieving heathens or pagans. Now, how do you maintain that kind of non-persecuting relationship? You shut your mouth and you compromise. As Paul tells the Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus reminds his disciples in John 18, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. A church that is at ease is a church that's abandoned the gospel. But they look at themselves and say, hey, we're a church that we get lots of visitors. A lot of the people in society, they love coming in, singing our songs, joining us for our meals. You know, even the Jews feel comfortable. We're a church that everybody feels comfortable in. Remember, years and years ago, in some of the earliest days that we visited the country of Mauritius, we visited a small church in the center of the island called St. Columbus Church. As I'm listening to the man who's speaking that day, he's introducing and welcoming everybody. It might have been at the end of the service, thanking everyone who had come. It was at the end. He was saying, you know, we are a church that want, we, you know, we have an open door. We want that um, Christians, Hindus, Muslims, that everyone would be willing to come here and that everyone who comes would feel welcomed and comfortable here. And I think they did. And that's not a compliment. Because where the truth is preached, where the amen, the true and faithful witness is proclaimed, basically it says, this is true, this is false. This is to be believed, this is to be denied. These things are to be abandoned and this is to be laid hold of. And when you tell that to people, it creates a conflict with their culture. It creates a conflict with their religion. If the design is that all might feel comfortable, then you live in a world of compromise. The gospel has been abandoned. Now, we would want to be a people who are warm and welcoming, a people who are loving and gracious. But any unbeliever who comes into the context of a church where the word of God is faithfully preached, their sins should be confronted. They, they ought to some degree begin to recognize what Jesus is saying of this church, their spiritual condition. I am wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, naked. I'm in need. I'm not sure 
if I'm in the right place. I'm not sure what would happen if I die. I'm not sure who is the true God and what, what, a, what a real church looks like. I don't know. There should be some confusion. There should be some conflict. There should be some conviction. There should be something. Shouldn't there be? But in Laodicea, it seemed they were loved. All was good. No problems with anybody. They could, maybe they were even, some have speculated, you know, jointly participating with various groups on social activities. Oh, let's join together with, you know, the, this, this local uh, businessmen's club and we'll all have a soup kitchen today. And let's join together. Why are you being unequally yoked? What business has light with darkness? Well, 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 I mean, we're all, it's just doing good. But you're not maintaining a distinctiveness. You're not indicating what is the difference. It needs to be known. It needs to be seen. In this particular church, they just didn't understand it. And the tendency was to think this. We are big. We are blessed. God loves us. You know how I can prove to you God loves me? Look at my balance sheet. Look at my bank statement. Look at my wallet. That's evidence that God is blessing me. If I was to ask you this, best of your recollection, not necessarily passing final judgment on anyone's soul, leave that to God, but think of the five, if you can, wealthiest individuals that you know of in the world today. How many of them know Christ? How many of them are living for the name and glory of Christ? See, they can have this whole world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? <laughs> but they're of the mindset that, no, if I'm gaining the world, then I'm blessed. God is with me. That's not, that idea has to be eradicated, and it still takes place in churches today. Churches today still have the tendency is to think because of our financial and numerical success, we know that God is pleased with us. Well, if you do that, you can, you can go to places within Roman Catholicism where they've abandoned the gospel, but they have beautiful cathedrals. I mean, magnificent. You know, among those who have, who have never even uh, danced in nearness to the gospel, who are completely far off, trapped in the deceit of Islam, they got a lot of money. They got oil pouring out of the ground. They got mosques and masjids that are massive and ornate and amazing. God's blessing? No. Why would we say that? Why would we think that? When we think like that, we think like the world. First John, and we know this well, First John 2.15, God says this, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Don't love the world. 
or the things that are in the world. What about the church at Laodicea? What did they love? The world and the things in the world. It says, if you love the world and the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, that doesn't mean we can't, to some degree, experience enjoyment and be thankful for the good things that God has provided for us. But do we love them? Are they our passion? Are they our goal? Are they our priority? I've oft said this, if we were to sit, sit someone down, and, and it often happens when someone's maybe searching for new employment, the typical thing that maybe someone who's interviewing them might say is, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in ten years? You know, and the typical answer is, in your seat. No, or, or however the, the, the response would be. But the question is this, for, for those of us who are believers, when someone asks that question to us, where do you see yourself in five years? For even a moment, do you think about, your knowledge of the word. Five more years of, of, of reading and studying the scriptures and receiving teaching, I'm gonna be, I, I'm gonna be so much more equipped and prepared to stand against wrong teaching and wrong ideas, to understand and, and, to, and to delve deeper in my worship. Oh, you know, and uh, I see myself uh, as hopefully being able to, to, to plant seeds more effectively as I learn to communicate the gospel with greater clarity. It, it, or how many believers, where do you see yourself in five years? When asked by anyone, well, they'll talk about their house, talk about their family, talk about their job, they'll talk about all kinds of other things. They'll mention all those things and say, well, what about, what about spiritually? Oh, I didn't know you were referring spiritually. I thought you were talking about. That should never be that way for the believer. Spiritually, it's not a separate world. It's not a separate thing. Indeed, it ought to be the priority. So it, 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 realistically, wouldn't it be glorious if someone was to ask that of a believer in employment? Say, I'm, I'm hoping to be much more like Christ in five years than I am now. I'm hoping to have been used of God in significant ways uh, uh, among my neighbors and co-workers as well as uh, my fellow believers in the church. I'm, you know, the, the interviewer might look at you, what is the matter with you? But right now I'm not saying that you need to somehow sabotage your own interview. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying why is it that generally speaking... Spiritual thoughts don't even come into our mind when those questions are asked. Jesus tells them of their condition. And what's, what's so interesting about it is when, when you're looking in this section, if you go back just a little bit in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, he says to this church that he was praising, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And so, so here's the strange thing. One church is rich, but he says you're poor, blind, and naked. One church is poor, but he says you're rich. Because they're rich in good works. They're rich in their inheritance. They're rich in grace. 
They're rich in life. It, 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 even as Jesus says in John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Things don't matter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, God's word tells us this. All these things, everything you see, it's going to be dissolved by fire. None of it lasts. So since all of this goes, how should we live? What should be our priorities? What should be our conduct? What should be our commitment? And this is, this is to all of us. Uh, those who are, uh, who, are, who are younger and children in college age, the tendency is often, well, right now my priority is, is college and, and classes, and then that's to equip me to get a good job, and, and that's to get a good income, and then that's to have sufficient to raise a family, and that's to have a good environment and a home to raise the family in. And we begin putting all of these good things in place, but these good things cannot be the priority priority has to be Christ above all else the question is this you know who knows who among us knows how many days are allotted to us the psalmist says cries out to God teach us to number our days so that we may gain a wise heart you know soon as I accomplish these things then I'm going to get serious about spiritual things even we can be like this church here that so, we so deceive ourselves to say, no, see, my, my, my passion to be a rich person is so that I can be generous because I want to give to missions and I want to give to the church and I want to help those in need. And so, so yeah, my real, my real motive isn't even selfish. It's really, it's for others. Yeah, are, are, are you planning to Give others food off your own table or after you have feasted in abundance, pass them a few leftovers. I mean, what's, what's the reality? And so you can see that Christ calls them to have a spiritual adjustment entirely. And, and he gives it, says it in such a, an interesting way. I counsel you, verse 18, here's where he calls for the spiritual adjustment. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe the shame of your nakedness and not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you see so here are these things that were so valued in the community he said you have these things literally but you don't have them in ways that matter you need a different kind of salve so that your eyes don't look with worldliness you need a different kind of clothing than the fancy clothing that can be afforded in this society you 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 need a wealth and riches that abides beyond this and he says to buy it and th by that it's well how do i buy it do i use gold to buy that no see why buy for yourself bread that does not matter isaiah 55 says this why verse 2 why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He had said in verse 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. I've always found that really interesting, Isaiah 55, 1. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How do you come and buy if you have no money, 
I mean, generally speaking, you would think it would more logically say, you got no money, come and freely eat. Here it says, come and buy and eat. Here it's telling them to buy. What it's asking them to do is give themselves. Give themselves to this test. Give their energy. Give their effort. Give their attention to these things instead. Take your eyes off of those worldly things and do the things that matter. And Peter, again, it says, when, and the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold and silver, though it is tested by fire. Faith, genuine faith that perseveres in the midst of trials is more valuable than gold tested by fire. This was a church that was not having the genuineness of their faith tested because they'd button their lips. They'd close their mouth. And so we see here the uh, final, I would call it, sweet authority. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. See, this is the opposite. Going in the flow of this, people tend to think, those who I love, I bless in abundance. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. What? If, well, if you love me, won't you just give me, give me, give me? You know? I mean, that would be like the child who says, you know, Mama, Daddy, if you love me, I want candy for breakfast and candy for lunch and candy for dinner and candy for snacks. What parent will give them that? Why not? It's not good for them. And actually, at the wrong time and in abundance, you see them sneaking the candy. But they, don't you put that. You. Correction. Don't eat that. Too much of that is not good for you. you know? And every child has to learn that the hard way, the day after the local observance of Halloween, as all night long they've stuffed candy in them only to be sick the next day. Those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline. Be zealous and repent. In other words, don't, don't see my blessing as that. What I'm telling, I'm coming to you with rebuke. I'm coming to you with correction. Be zealous and repent. He also tells them this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Want us to understand this. This verse is oft misused. It's often used in an evangelistic context as if little Jesus is knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart. This is to the church at Laodicea. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. And he says, let me in. This is, this is more in line with what you see in, in, in Matthew 24, where the master of the house is away. And the servant in the house should stay awake so that when the master returns and knocks on the door, what is he ready to do? Let the servant, the servant's ready to let the master in the door. Because in, in a number of those, when the master comes back from being away and the servant is lazy, drunk, sleeping, what happens to the servant? He's thrown out where there's, and beaten where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what happens to the faithful servant? So he's reminding these people who are in the church at Laodicea, you may be a part of this little community, but your confidence cannot be because you're a member of the church. 
Your confidence has to be because I am truly your master. And because you, you are serving me, that you are a member of my body. It doesn't take long for churches to become social clubs. And so Jesus gives that warning. Look, and, but it, with the warning, there's also something positive in there. Even if eventually maybe this church, like others, gets its lampstand removed and gets wiped out. If there are any in the church who do repent and do turn away from the worldliness and materialism that has gripped them and give themselves to service, they can know this. He will commune with them. I will come in and I will dine with you. So there will be... Uh, uh, this sweet love of God comes with correction. It comes with communion. I will uh, come in and eat with him. So that's what a comfort to the... If there is a genuine believer among them who momentarily got caught up in materialism. Can that happen? Don't look far. It, it, it can happen. And it's never deliberate. It's never planned or it's intentional. We just, before we know it, we're caught up in money, cars, planes, sports. Before we know it, our pursuits are exactly like our unbelieving neighbors. God help us with those things that we would repent. And then he says that whoever overcomes... I will grant to sit on my throne as I conquered and sat down. Remember, Jesus conquered and sat down when? When he died. Brothers and sisters, we remain in this fight to be zealous and to repent until we die. We are not in danger of the traditional forms of idolatry as we considered earlier. The modern forms of idolatry are all around us, tempting us, luring us, seeking to distract us. Five simple thoughts this morning. The sure announcer, what Jesus says needs to be heard. The Savior's assessment, they are blind, pitiable, poor, and naked. Their self-assessment, they were rich and needed nothing. They needed a spiritual adjustment to prize and value different things and to understand that he prizes and values different things, spiritual things, and he gives to us as our temporal prizes, not earthly things. We see that spiritual adjustment is necessary, and then we see it comes to us from that sweet authority, correction, and the call of rebuke is a sign of love, the promise of communion intimacy and companionship and then the promise also of compensation that he is the rewarder of those who seek him let's pray lord we are just amazed when we look at these churches and we see that though cultures change clothing styles change music styles change it seems that the sinful desires of man greed covetousness sensuality uh they are the same since the fall, and they continue to, to uh, reach out in all cultures. Immorality, theft, murder, all of these sins take place in every society around the world, regardless of what they claim their religion are. 
we know that the only freedom from sin, the only hope and the only overcoming is in the Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be not be complacent. May we not be covetousness for the things of this world. But may we be committed to be bold, to grow spiritually, to lay hold of you, to let you be known and your glory be known and face whatever challenges may arise. And may you continue uh, to bring us hope, correction, and encouragement as we await for you to come one day with your rewards for your servant. May we, we be found awake, working, faithful, and ready. In Jesus' name.